This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the southernmost point of Dorn to the lands of always winter, what is west of west and westeros in the shadows in the east? This is Casterly Talk. I'm Kat Napsok for a, another episode that is a Game of Thrones rewatch. It's the 98th episode overall of Casterly Talk, the 21st of our rewatch, because we are up to season three, episode one, Valor, not Morghulis, Valor. Dorhiris, because all men must serve. All men must die. That was the end of last season. Now we're into season three. Uh, just me again today. Uh, can't wait to get to uh, have some, having some pundits back on and uh, eventually in studio even, all those kind of fun things. Uh, part of the reason we're going to be able to do that is uh, Casterly Talk is now a co-production with Morning Drive Media and the Good People Association and is part of the GPA Network we got our own YouTube channel here. If you haven't uh, subscribed, hit that subscribe button, bells, whistles, and shame, shame, all those things. Uh, but a lot of you probably listen, in fact, more of you right now, definitely listen on the podcast feed, which is still the same, same spot. Uh, now easier to rediscover on the Anchor app if you want to call and leave a message, which is something I, I certainly hope you all do. we got a great call today. We've got some calls uh, queued up for future episodes. Uh, that's what we're doing. Because my recording schedule, speaking honestly, is a, a, little, a little crazy, a little out of whack. It's a little all over the place. Uh, I can't really pinpoint when I'm recording episodes. So uh, just if you have a call, you want to, you know, something about season three, an episode uh, far in advance, just call. Leave a message via the Casterly Talk app uh, on the Anchor app, uh, and uh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I swear. I promise. Your calls really help fuel the show, as it did back in the day on Daily Thrones. Um, the uh, episode we're reviewing today is, um, like I said, Season 3, Episode 1, the 21st episode overall of the show here. And we are now into Season 3. The original air date of this, March 31st. 2013, uh, coming back to that date in a second here, director Daniel Minihan, uh, Minahan, I should say, uh, a staple of kind of the early seasons of Game of Thrones, even though his name is not tossed around as one of the great Game of Thrones directors, I, I think he really helped establish the tone uh, of the show and everything going forward. Writers Benioff and Weiss, cinematographer Jonathan Freeman, editor Francis Parker. It should be noted this episode was directed to, uh, dedicated to Martin Kenzie. Uh, cinematographer, cameraman, camera specialist who passed away from cancer um, during season three, the production of season three. He'd worked on uh, previous seasons as a cinematographer, as I said, and 
interesting note was a second unit cameraman and camera operator uh, on a return of uh, the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back. A uh, little team, a uh, little, te- little, little movie you, you might have heard it. He was on those teams as well. So uh, that is uh, uh, sad news, uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, what a career. And this episode was dedicated to uh, Martin Kenzie. As I said, we're getting into season three, which means we probably have some thoughts on season three. And I wanted to hear some of those uh, thoughts from you. And we got Eric Monroe calling in with with his thoughts of season three going into our rewatch here. Hey, Ken and Cashley Talk. So as we get ready to talk about season three for for the rewatch, I wanted to talk about my complicated relationship with season three because for the longest time, it wasn't one of my favorite seasons. If you were to ask me after season four, you know, what was your least favorite season? I would say, without question, season three. Now, I by no means mean that I didn't like it or I hated it. It just wasn't one of my favorite seasons. However, during my last rewatch of Game of Thrones, I grew I just grew this whole new appreciation for the season you know people can change and i I love the season now kiss by fire is one of the best episodes of the series and without question it is jamie lannister's season the arc he goes through during the season is absolutely incredible so i can't wait to hear you talk about it and your thoughts and we get some pretty good stannis stuff we do get some good stannis stuff oh boy eric and i our love of stannis is real uh i am uh i'm with eric on this i'm so curious of uh, my own thoughts on season three at the end of this rewatch um uh and when i you know at the end of really looking into season three season three i think is is remembered most for the red wedding Uh, by the way if you're watching the show for the first time uh the show being game of thrones and you're following along with me Apologies. This is uh, looking back on the big themes and lessons of the show. So we're going to be talking as if uh, you've watched it all. So binge your rewatch, get through and come back and join us here. I, I don't mean to uh, get to some of the big spoilers, but it is just what it is. We're having a historical conversation looking back. Um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this. I keep kind of resetting the show and the themes of this show, Castle Talk, uh, hoping that a lot of new people are discovering it here, especially as we go into the GPA anchor. I'm not just here looking back on the moments and the things I loved and, you know, the characters. That's part of it. But I really want to look at this show because I believe, believe the themes and lessons are, are universal. It is uh, uh, its own kind of modern myth, not unlike Star Wars, which is something big to my world and, and to my uh, uh, broadcasting career. Uh, and just uh, looking at the show through that lens, but also now that all eight seasons are done and a little time has passed between that eighth and final season, just now going back and looking at these episodes and these seasons and seeing where it all kind of lays now. And I, I'm not one for ranking, 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 ranking. It's fun, but I think that can be confused as criticism sometimes. But that said, I have in the past said that I, I'm not a huge fan of season three. By that, I mean, I love each and every one of the Game and Throw seasons a lot. That's why I'm doing it. But I think season three, looking back, it's remembered for the Red Wedding, remembered for Daenerys getting the Unsullied and that big kind of Dracarys moment. I think some of the other stuff um, is is uh, maybe, uh, I'll say the word overrated, but it's, it's, a, it's a word I don't even want to throw out here, but I guess I guess I will. I guess I just did. I really loved this season when it was happening. I really did. I, did, I just remember looking back, revisiting it while the show's going on and going, ah, not, I, I just don't love everything in the season. I think that's going to change. 
Now, again, I don't like ranking seasons. I don't, I, I, I don't think there's, other than having fun, I just don't think there's much point to it. But yeah, season seven has faltered for me over the course of uh, time, looking back going, yeah, maybe that, maybe that, maybe that. Season three, I have some of those moments. And not even the moments of, ah, that didn't work, or I didn't like that, but just, it doesn't it didn't hit for me as much. It's kind of, a, I don't want to say a forgotten season in my own Game of Thrones watching career, if that's a thing. Um, but other than those big moments, I sometimes struggle to remember what, what happened in season three. I, I can't remember. I, that. Oh, the Jamie. Okay. Eric's right. It's it's a big Jamie Lannister season. Uh, a lot. This is the big stuff for him that, that uh, bridges the gap. It's the midpoint, so to speak, of uh, his own journey, I think. A lot of things going on. A lot of big things left to come in Jamie, with Jamie. Um, I think Jamie lingers a little bit in season five and six. Uh, and I like where Jamie ends up overall. Uh, I really do. Uh, tragic as it is, bittersweet as it is, and frustrating as it is. But we'll get to that. We have a lot of big Jamie stuff this season. So that's where I'm at, Eric. Uh, curious myself as to what this rewatch is. I just completed a rewatch. My, my girlfriend and I, uh, Grace, watched uh, the show, and I was doing it for Cashly Talk. Then I got ahead of my own podcast. And... We watched it. We binged it. We went through. We went through fast. And I wasn't stopping. wasn't taking notes. wasn't wasn't looking at it. So I already already kind of have a thought that, ah, there's more things in season three than even I give it credit for. But I'm really excited to dive into everything going on. Now, I'll say this. Uh, the beginning of season three is one of my favorites. Imagine that date. March 31st, 2013. I remember right where I was. This was the season now. Season one, popular. The numbers were growing. HBO figured they had a hit on their hand, but could they maintain it? Did they want to commit to it? It seemed to be, oh, yeah, we'll give you a second season. Uh, We'll announce that a little bit later on, and they would get it. Second season, bigger, bigger numbers, big battle. That big Ned Stark beheading moment, maybe it wasn't in season two. There's some big deaths and some big moments, some water cooler moments indeed, but it's a more thoughtful season. It's a, perhaps a, a deeper season. There's a season then. Over time, I think people's view of season two has changed for the better. So now comes season three. By now, it's a thing. It's 2013. That geek culture, that nerd culture, that fandom culture, the podcast industry, the, the podcast punditry industry, good or bad, bad or worse, it's alive and well. Game of Thrones season one, 2011. Oh, were there shows? Yeah. Were there podcasts? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But between then and season three, things have begun to change. The cast, every time they show up at a, a Comic-Con, rock stars beyond belief. Um, in fact, 2013 was my first Comic-Con. I can tell you, I was fortunate enough to be at a party with Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie and uh, uh, Richard Madden and at, at another one with George R. R. Martin. And I can tell you, he walked into the room and I was in the room staring at the elevator when the doors opened and George R. R. Martin appeared. Unbelievable. It was as if Elvis came back from the dead with the help of, of uh, a fire god <laughs> and walked into the room. The show was something special now. So... This was that first season that I had a Game of Thrones viewing party. And the pilot episode, or the, not the pilot episode, excuse me, the first episode of the season. Uh, all my friends are gathered around in my living room, and we just uh, couldn't wait. A lot of the people in the room, book readers, book longtime book readers, myself, I was finished with the first two books and 
had Stormer shore, swords and was like, ah, should I read this before the season? No, I'm, I'm going to hold off. And I'm glad I did because this is the last season for me that I experienced uh, with everything being a full surprise. Uh, by season four, I had finished all the books and went ahead and got that uh, books uh, to that point, I should say. Uh, the first five, and uh, knew what was coming. It was a different experience, a fun experience, a full experience, but a different one than season three where I just had no idea. So, uh, in fact, there's some uh, things that I remember thinking was going to happen in season two that, uh, no, didn't even close. Didn't come close to happening. So I remember, and I remember this cold opening. Oh, my God, because season two ends with one of my favorite endings of any season, The Army of the Dead has approached the fist of the first men, and this one begins. So I'm not even worried about themes or lessons in this moment. This was just a cool moment. We were all uh, freaked out. We were all scared, a cold open, something different. And Jor Mormont's lines, we're going to talk about those in a bit, just absolutely sent chills down our spines, our collective spines, and we are ready for season three. And then the intro, the graphic, the movies, Ramajwadi's music plays. Yeah, we go around the map, and Winterfell was a smoking ruin. And we all cheered, not celebrating that Winterfell was Winterfell was a smoker, smoking ruin, but we just cheered that the graphics had changed and something new, and it was an ominous season too. Which might be some of the, season three, a, a little darker season, but then again, find me a bright, sunny, cheery season of Game of Thrones. Let's get into what we got going on here in season three, episode one, Valor Dorhiris. Taking a sip of my water out of my Star Wars Cantina mug. That's, you know, we're crossing the streams here. This episode, as we know, as we say, is All Men Must Serve, which follows season two's All Men Must Die ending. So the question is, what are they serving? Who are they serving? How? What? The whys? Who is serving? We need to know. Oddly enough, Arya Stark, the one who will go on to really learn this phrase um, and learn it well, not present in this one. And overall, I will say about this episode, this was the first time I started to hear, as, as now, again, Game of Thrones is big. Um, the Game of Thrones was, was, was this phenomenon getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but now the conversations were getting bigger and bigger and bigger around it. And this is at the end of this episode and going into the next couple of days after, this was the first time I remember really hearing. Now, again, season two, I think you can say, eh, people were saying it was a little slower, uh, not not like season one. But this one, season three, episode one, the first time I really remember people going, ah, just get to the point. I get, did, this, did this advance the plot? I get it. We're setting this, the pieces for season three, but I, I want some action. I think we're all, as the conversation got bigger, we're all... Craving the big reveals. We were craving episode nine. We wanted to know. We just didn't have the patience. But this, uh, this episode, excuse me, uh, this episode uh, and uh, this this uh, the season wants you to be a little bit patient, uh, a little patient as it, as it um, uh, moves you forward here. So uh, I think the big theme for this episode, all the lessons are tied to this idea of what do you want? It's actually said a few times in this episode. Uh, a lot of it at uh, at Tyrion. Uh, uh, what do you want? What do you actually want? And uh, does it go beyond what you need or what you think you need? Is that, is that really what you need? Is it really what you want? Now, I'll say this. Um, almost every episode and every scene of any show or movie ever, ever written, produced, created, has this going on. This isn't some giant insight here. 
I'm not uh, changing the way in which you look at shows or movies. Um, but in this particular episode, it's very much in focus. Uh, and uh, season two, episode one begins with um, what kind of ruler are you and, and who wants to rule this land? Uh, the, 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 the clash of uh, the, the, the army, you know, the, the armies of five kings are clashing and we're going to meet those potential kings all through season two. And that's what the first episode of season two is about. Well, this one is a little different. All men must die, and they died. In many cases, they died. A lot of deaths at the end of uh, season two, right? Um, uh, now we, we must find out, can you serve? I think maybe it's even more the question than do you want to serve? We got examples of leadership all through this uh, show, uh, this particular episode. And those leaders have different versions on you know how to lead. Not only that, but like serving is, is part of leadership. You're kind of working for the others. And how do you do that? And how do you approach that? And how do you, how do you maintain that control that, that comes up? So a lot of it is, again, what do you want? Do you want to survive? Do you want power? Do you want respect, control? Do you want your place, your legacy? Big one, do you want to be a hero? It's all on the table. Uh, but I think this episode wants you to ask, what is behind that? Uh, many of these characters, I think, are learning what they actually want. They're being forced to face the uh, question about what do you want? What do you really want? What do you want? What do you need? Those kind of big things. Um, that's what's going on here. I think there's some big John stuff. Important Danny stuff, but giant, giant, no pun intended, John Snow stuff. Before we get to that, though, this cold opening sets the tone. We begin with the Night's Watch. Great sequence. Fun sequence. Uh, tragedy. You know, I love Samuel Tarley. I'm always rooting for him. <sighs> it was a little frustrating. I mean that in a good way. When you're totally lost in the story of just watching him kind of have to uh, explain to uh, his mentor, the man he really loves and respects, Jor Mormont, the Lord Commander. Nah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get the Ravens. I didn't get the Ravens. I didn't send them. Um... So the Night's Watch sets the tone. What do they want? Well, they want to survive. They want to get back to the wall. They want to stay alive. It is survival. But what do they really want to do? What do they need to do? They need to warn everybody. Everybody is uh, at stake here. Everyone is at risk. It is one of my favorite scenes, but also it is also one of my favorite lines. We need to get back to the wall. It's a long march. You know what's out there, but we have to make it. We have to warn them, or before winter's done, everyone you've ever known will be dead. Smashed to that opening credits. Oh, that's a that's a great moment. Jor Mormont. I love Jor Mormont. Um, we got some sad Jor Mormont, Mormont moments coming up. I know that, but here he is. I think that 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 cold opening really sets the tone for this season. What do you want? Everyone wants to win the throne. Is that what it is? What do they really want? What are they really after? And we start diving in with big stuff with Jon Snow. Jon Snow at the end of season two, the great stuff with Egret says, now you get to meet, you know, you're going to meet the king behind the wall. And I got to tell you, it's similar. I always crossing those streams, taking that sip of Star Wars cantina water. <clears throat> It's, it's somewhat similar to Luke. It's a hero's journey. John and Danny are both on their own kind of journeys. John might seem to be on a little bit more of the stereotypical hero's journey. Uh, 
And no hero on that journey uh, wants to be a hero uh, in the end. I think in the end. But they may begin that way. Um, they may want to plug into the bigger story. Uh, Luke staring off into the twin suns. That's a lot about him wanting to leave his world, wanting adventure, wanting to be these things, and then wanting to be like his father, a great warrior. What's one of the first things that, that happens to him as his journey goes on? After he gets some great early victories, he goes to Yoda to continue his training, to be a great warrior. Uh, and he has a certain vision of, of who Yoda might be, who this Yoda warrior might be. And as we know, if you're a Star Wars fan of even a casual nature, Luke learns that wars not, aren't what make you great. You know, you don't want to be a warrior. You're not here trying to be a hero. You're trying to serve, help, protect, knowledge, defense. Jedi doesn't crave adventure. It's a serious mind. It's a different thing. He's faced with it. He's faced with that truth. Jon Snow wants to be a hero. Corn Halfhand, in season two, hatches this plan, says it pretty tr- plain and true, basically, kill me, infiltrate Mansa's army, and get back to us at the wall and tell us how to defeat them because that's the foe. Save the realm. Be the hero. You've taken these vows. You are the watcher on the wall. John, you must do that. And, and John wants to go to the wall back in season one. He wants to find his place. He's the bastard on the outside of uh, the Stark family. He wants to go be something else. He's dreaming of this. And so now he gets here. Egret takes him into... Uh, the heart of it all, the heart of uh, Mance's army, his large army that is so big that John at the end of season two sees it and gasps. It's, it's, he can't believe the just enormity uh, of this army, the enormous scale of what Mance has done. He must be a spectacular king. He is the king beyond the wall, uh, a, a, a ranger of the Night's Watch turned traitor who has uh, united these armies, united these clans to destroy us all, right? That's what John is here for. He wants to be a hero. He wants to infiltrate the wild and to kill Mance. So he meets Mance Raider, but first we have the great moment. Tormund, Giant's Bane. Oh boy, we get some wonderful characters introduced in this episode. So many of them. Uh, Christopher Hivju is here as Tormund, Giant's Bane, that chicken eater. What a scene. Uh, what a great opening scene. Love it. And of course, Kieran Hines, uh, the great Kieran Hines as Mance Raider. This is actually the first scene he shot for the his show, which is kind of rare that your first scene that you shoot is actually your first scene on the show. But uh, great sequence. It is one of my favorites. I think Kieran Hines is so great as Mansfrater that that he's so he's on the show so so little. He's not on a lot when you really put it all together. Every line, every moment is just impactful. And this is, like I said, huge John stuff. I I I, I don't want it overlooked. I can't overstate it enough. John begins this conversation. He's nervous. He's scared. He's, he's, he's in the midst of enemies. He's trying to um, fake it enough to infiltrate. Tall task. Uh, does what he feels he should do. Bow before the king beyond the wall, this great and glorious king. It's not the one he actually bows in front of. Mance uh, says it pretty, pretty clear. We don't, uh, you know, we don't bow. We don't, we don't bow to no one here. Um, which doesn't mean they don't serve. I think quite the opposite, but it's a different take take up here. So right away, it's different for John. Right away, it's it's a little bit of a curveball. Um, 
not to just break down every line, but why I just love this scene so much. It's so key to John. When Mance asks him plain, you know, they get the, you know, he killed Cornhef and some great lines we'll mention later with um, giant, Torment Giant Spain and Jon Snow and little skeletons and all those kind of wonderful things. And I love Mance, uh, you know, he's my enemy and I'm glad he's dead and uh, all that kind of stuff. The traitor, you got the traitor line right away. John's like, if I'm a traitor, you're a traitor. Ooh, burn. The tension is is um, tension is palpable, right? Mance, when he Mance asks John, "Why are uh, why are you here?" John struggles. John gives him the answer. Oh, you know, I want freedom. B.S. says Mance Rider. Sees right through it. Mance, I think, sees and D.B. Weiss does explain it quite well in the post uh, credits kind of behind the scenes stuff. Mance sees maybe a little of himself in John. And over time, John's going to see a lot of himself in Mance. They have a, a, a common goal in the end, uh, uh, the real war, right? We don't, we don't know that yet from Mance, and John doesn't know that yet from Mance. He sees still the king beyond the wall uniting the clans to destroy the Night's Watch and destroy the realm. That's still where John is at this point. That's why he's here. And Mance sees that. He says, oh, no, no, I don't think so. I think what you want most of all is to be a hero. Jon Snow ends up being a big hero in the show, without a doubt. He's already a hero. Again, Luke Skywalker takes out the uh, Death Star before he goes and learns about the journey he's actually on. Jon Snow's already done uh, um, uh, wonderful things. He already has some good connections. If we already like Jon, hey, he might be a Boy Scout, a little boring to some. I've heard that complaint too. Uh, but John, John wants to be a hero, and we kind of view him as a hero. But... The lesson here is that you you want to be a hero, but that's not really what you want, John. It's not really what you're here for. I think John's going to grow into that. But Mance forces him to think about that. It's a new choice he must make. John knows he cannot lie. He cannot lie to Mance Raider. And John does want to be a hero. That's why he's here. But in this moment, whether or not John actually believes it in this moment, or again, as I think he grows into it over time, he's still got some fighting to do. He's still got some warring with the wildlings to do. He's still got some big things coming. But John is really on this, I'm not a warrior. I'm here to help people. And this is the moment where I think he starts to get it, or at least he's forced to. Again, he can't lie to Mance Raider. Mance We'll see through it. He already has. You want to be a hero. John answers with his truth. He tells the story of what happened at Craster's Keep. We love Jor Mormont, but he kind of throws him under the bus here a bit. But it's the truth. It's what John was feeling. He can still look up to Jor Mormont and know that uh, Mormont has to make tough choices. and has to do it uh, mostly for the good of the realm and, and with the good of the realm in mind. But John speaks his absolute truth here in this moment. He absolutely speaks it. I saw one of them. You're telling me you saw one of them. Yeah, I saw one of them. And that alone makes you want to join? No, no, no. What I experienced after, when I told Jor Mormont, my Lord Commander, the one who wants me to be a leader, the one who I think wants me to be a hero, the one who's doing his best to defend the realm, he already knew 
back in that episode in season two, we talked about these choices and these compromises. Um, a lot about season two uh, is about those compromises you might make for your uh, goal or your pursuit. And Stannis is making these compromises all along the way. And I'm a Stannis fan. That breaks my heart. John speaks the truth. He's not lying to Mance. He wants to fight for the side that fights for the living. That was guiding John perhaps before he knew it. But going forward, everything he does goes towards that goal. That's what he really wants. Does he want to be a hero and stand in front of the horses of the army of, of Ramsey Bolton and pull his sword? No, he doesn't want to do that. He's doing all of it to defend those that can't be defended, to defend his home, his legacy, his family, to defend the realm, to stand before those armies. And I think John made some mistakes to get in that point in season six, but we're a few years away from that. John's death, as we've talked about and we'll talk about again, John's actual death comes because he made a decision to fight for the side that fights for the living, and often that side, that side isn't the one he's been fighting with or isn't the one that he was trained or raised to fight with. Not just shades of gray that we do love in this world, but he really in this moment starts to see it. Egret has made him already think about it. Why are you fighting us, she says to him in season two, when he uh, proudly proclaims, I, 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 am, I, I am of the old, uh, old blood as well. Uh, the, first men, uh, the blood of the first men runs through me. I'm Ned Stark's son. Then why are you fighting us? We're just on this side of the wall. And it's John's learning and probably about to learn. They're not on that side of the wall gathering their armies to destroy the wall and the Night's Watch and take the realm and destroy Winterfell. They're not here to do that. They just want to get below that wall. Now, we as fans know that. We, season uh, eight is behind us. We know everything about it. We know John starts to see them as free folk. He's already there. I think in this moment, he might still say wildlings, but that, that choice is it's pretty important. It's pretty powerful, and I think it all ties to this moment. It is absolute to me, I'd say, if I was ranking one of my top 10 favorite season uh, episodes or scenes, excuse me, in, in the show, um, because of what it means to John. The why of Jon Snow, I talked about that before, but in rewatching it uh, this time, it became even more clear. This is a little bit of Luke and Yoda and Dagobah and Empire Strikes Back. John has shown up to, ex- to expecting to see this great and glorious warrior king that has done the impossible, gathered these clans, gathered these armies, and is going to take over the world. And said what he's found is a man who says, don't kneel before me. We do not kneel. We do not bow. I'm here to serve you more than anything else because I just, I just want to get below. I want to save all these people. That's what John is about to learn. And I'm maybe even skipping ahead in a couple episodes, some of the stuff that John's about to learn. But it all goes to this moment. John started to question things with Egret. Hey, I guess you could write that off. Hey, you know, pretty redhead, and I want to make some choices. But Egret's way more than that. Egret's way more than that. She's already got him thinking, and now his expectations, boom, have just been exploded out of the screen, like wildfire hitting it. He does want to be a hero. He wants to go get the glory. He wants to, he has good in his heart. John is always purely driven. But going forward, he absolutely realizes a hero does not want to be a hero. 
And I think he truly grows into that statement of I want to fight for the side that fights for the living. Love this scene. Absolutely one of my favorites. Absolutely one of my favorites. Like I said, there's a theme of serving in here as well with Mance Raider. Um, uh, speaking true, I, 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 on, on, even though he doesn't exactly say this stuff, it, it's, it's pretty important. It's not just some defiant um, uh, concept of we don't kneel, just like, like Mance not kneeling before Stannis. It's, it's choice. It's freedom. It's true choice. It's true freedom. Freedom. But he has become a, a leader. He is the king beyond the wall, unlike perhaps any kings in the past that we've heard about or that John's heard about. He, he's there because he's, he's there serving everyone else. He's united them for their goal, not his survival. Eager in this scene, um, she has a great little moment, a great conversation leading into the tent. But in the tent, Rose Leslie gives a look, right? You could write it off as a little uh, longing. You know, Kit Harrington, her real-life husband eventually, right? Yeah, he's got those pretty locks. He's got that pouty face. You know, she likes him. You could write that off as just that. Uh, but to me, it's also about what Egret wants. It sets it up for season three with Egret. Just by her bringing him, him here. Just by her vouching for him. But now in that moment, looking at him, man season. Ah, oh, girl likes you. So what does Egret want? Well, you know. She might want John. That's fair. But what she really wants, what she really needs is to believe that his turn is true. And that's going to be the crux of every one of their scenes going forward. She loves him. Love is real. But she needs, she wants his transition to be real. She doesn't need him, doesn't want him to be a crow anymore. She wants him to be her, with her, one of her, a free folk, and for it to be real. Big stuff coming with them, so just off that look. Uh, moving on to some of the other characters. I almost could just do the entire episode on <laughs> that one scene with Mance and Jon Snow. I love it so much. I love it so much. Uh, we got Tyrion and Cersei. we jump around a little bit here. Um, Tyrion... He wants to stay alive. You know, he's not in a great spot here. I love some of the stuff early on. I love, you know, we start with Braun and the brothel. Uh, we know what Braun wants in that scene, but uh, Podrick comes to take him back. Uh, Tyrion wants to stay alive, right? He wants to stay alive because people are coming after him. He, he knows it's part of the, uh, I don't know if I call it a mystery, but a little bit of a, you know, attempted murder mystery with him at the Battle of Blackwater Bay and who tried to give, who gave the order to have him killed, all that kind of stuff. So he wants to stay alive. That's what he needs Braun for in that moment. Uh, Cersei shows up. Great stuff. Great sequence. Uh, also, I love the little reference. We'll talk about it later about his nose and that's uh, clearly a, a book difference. Uh, Cersei wants to keep her power, keep her position, and also keep her secret. Uh, very concerned about that, but there's bigger things going with Cersei here, but a great scene to start it off. Uh, and he's going to go meet his father. Um, so uh, what does Tyrion want? Well, let's jump to that scene. Um, we go to Tyrion. We're going a little bit uh, later in the show, um, uh, but I think this theme, this discussion of this theme and lesson, uh, uh, it begs us to kind of jump to that there. He goes to meet his father, and Tywin Lannister, who did not show up to uh, check on him while... Uh, Tyrion convalesced and recovered from his injury. Tywin wants, Tywin wants to end this war. He, he wants to cement his legacy. That much is clear. And he's writing a letter that matches that want. Uh, we'll talk about that letter writing in a bit. 
uh, he asked Tyrion, uh, plain and simply, and, and this is one of those moments where sometimes just what he, what each and every episode is about. Uh, just at one point, there something always jumps out at you. Uh, Tyrion is asked by Tywin, now tell me what you want. Tyrion uh, wants recognition, right? He helped plan the defense of Blackwater Bay. He wants his uh, true place in the city. He wants his rightful place in his family. He wants Casterly Rock. He he really thinks he deserves that. And, and I think we all could agree he probably does. Cersei might have some claims to that and her own frustrations with the... Uh, patriarchal society there that she couldn't get it there uh jamie we know is uh not here and uh even if he was he's part of the king's guard unavailable to take it maybe so Tyrion, on just a very logistical spot wants it but what does he really want he wants his father to recognize him he wants his father to love him maybe maybe i think he might settle for his respect <laughs> might be enough i think Tyrion might be okay with just the respect let's start with the respect dad um but he wants his uh, love from his father. I, I believe in season three, uh, I think Tyrion could still accept him uh, as his father and not see, uh, can see past uh, some of the monstrous sides of him. It's hard. I think, it, I think it's a flicker. He wants it. That's all he wants. It isn't just that Tyrion wants that little uh, hand of the king insignia and the emblem. He, he doesn't want that. He wants to know, Dad, why weren't you there? And it is a heartbreaking scene. It's... So good, but it's a heartbreaking scene. Uh, Tywin Lannister, Charles Dance, just leans into everything he thought he knew and everything that's probably at one point true about Tyrion. Uh, whoring around, drinking all around, uh, all those uh, all those kind of uh, stereotypes about Tyrion. That again, true, and, and Tyrion acknowledges that, but he's not that anymore. He's trying not to be that person anymore. And he's changing, and his, and his season two uh, story, his arc has changed him, and... and he wants something more, and he wants perhaps to protect the dynasty, the family name, the legacy, just as much as his father does. But he just wants him to recognize that. That sets the tone not only going forward for this season, but I think it um, it, it, it goes all the way into season four and, and to the uh, final uh, act that Tyrion uh, takes against his father. I am a Tywin Lannister fan. I am. We got to see a lot of good Tywin stuff not that Tywin is good, but we saw some good Tywin stuff. We got we got a bit of his heart in season two. And here we are, right back. Cold, just harsh Tywin Lannister. He does not bend nor break. He wants to protect his legacy. He needs to end this war. He's got seven kingdoms to protect and three are in open rebellion. These are the things he wants. He truly wants. And it will cost him because he can't see the whole picture. Davos, we got some Davos stuff. Oh, the blistered Davos on the side of the rocks. And also one of my favorite, Liam Cunningham, so great, of course. But I've always always loved his read on, uh, uh, you know, when they ask him, who are you? And he's like, I was in the battle. Real battle. I was in the battle. Um, so Davos uh, wants to get back to Stannis. He wants to see Stannis on the throne. He wants to kill Melisandre. But he's haunted by the death of his son, and I think he's wanted to be a, fa- a father figure, and that drives him now. Um, but he also really wants to see Stannis reclaim who he is and stay true to what he was. Um, Davos is one of those uh, pure characters in a way. His moral compass is on pretty straight, whether or not he does some uh, shady things on the side. And one of the shady things, he's married. We don't know where his wife is. He sends a letter. 
uh, I'm out. I'm, I'm getting the paper and some cigarettes. I'll be back in eight years. But hey, that's Davos's life. But Davos stays true to himself uh, right here in the beginning. And, and this factors in, again, to what he wants out of Stannis, someone he looks up to. Uh, he, he says to Stannis, you're an honorable man, a just man. And I've always said, as much as I love Stannis, but I'm fascinated with Stannis's fall, and that's the lessons of the character. I'm equally as fascinated with Davos, who, while everyone watching the show, everyone reading the stories, everyone watching is, is booing Stannis Baratheon, except for me and Eric Monroe and a couple of folks. But Davos is there too, holding true, holding his line of saying, you're an honorable man, a just man to stand as well. Everyone's booing, everyone's booing. But part of that is Davos stays true to himself. And when faced with this tough question, when he's rescued, which, which king did you serve? Davos takes a moment. He knows the severity of the situation. If he answers this wrong, he's left on this rock to die. At best, they might just kill him right then and there. But he stays true. The one true king, Stannis Baratheon. And him being true to himself saves him in this scene, saves him in this moment, and drives him forward with uh, Stannis. So, yeah, he wants to kill Melisandre. uh, And he has those reasons. But he wants to make sure Stannis' honor is restored. And I think himself in that scene with Salador San, great scene, uh, great lines. Um, Davos also... Feels that hole in the show. Uh, only one son. He's lost him. Mathos is gone. And now um, he wants to feel like he has that kind of place. He let his son down and he wants to uh, he wants to fill that uh, a gaping hole in his soul. And that will drive him going forward. We go to Rob Stark. I think Rob going into Harrenhal. We get to meet Kyburn. Kyburn alert. Anton Lesser showing up as Kyburn. Um Rob wants to keep the respect of his armies, um, but he is it, it's devolving around him. He's losing control. He senses it, and he wants to save face. Leadership is, again, about serving. That's part of the lessons, I think, in this episode. Leadership, leadership is about serving, and that's getting harder for him. He can't serve those around him because he's got his mother making things a little hard for him. I don't fault Catelyn Stark as much as I used to anymore. I, I've grown to appreciate every decision Catelyn Stark makes, Um it's a harsh reality of a situation. That's my mother who wants to save our family. That's what she wants. But I want to. I want to avenge my father. I want to uh, free the North. Uh, I don't necessarily want the Iron Throne, but I want to keep the throne or the the crown I have now. But it's getting harder and harder and harder, and it's going to spiral out of control. And you see it. The great shot. Richard Karstark and uh, Roose Bolton just kind of looking as they walk into Harrenhal, and it ain't good. And everyone looking down on Catelyn. It's uh, it's uh, it's all starting to fail around Rob, and he knows it. He wants to recover. He wants to get the respect of his armies, of his men, of his women, of the people of his land that he now has. Um, so it's going to be a tough journey for him. Bittersweet. Uh, not even bittersweet, just bitter. <laughs> Uh, Sansa's, uh, setting the, we're setting the, the, the Sansa arc here. She wants to go home. Baelish needs her as a piece to the puzzle and wants her. Talk about we needs and wants. Sansa wants the dream. Uh, that's the game she's playing with Shay, watching the ship sailing out of the bay. Great little scene. She wants to escape. She has that great line as uh, Shay doesn't play the game. 
Shay just, oh, no, that, that, that boat's going to Volantis. Oh, yeah, what's the story? Well, because when I left Volantis, I got on a ship that looked like that. Well, Sansa's not happy with that, not just Shay being a bad game player with her, um, but uh, Shay kind of bringing the reality, and, and Sansa doesn't want that because she says the truth is always either terrible, which she's experienced a lot of, or it's boring. She can't have the story be terrible anymore. She wants to go home. She feels that's her way out, and Baelish is there to offer it. Uh, sets the tone, too. We talk about things that have uh, foreshadowing and more meaning. We'll do that a little bit later. But Baelish kind of, I think, setting stuff all the way into season four with how he's going to get Santa out. Uh, we also have got some great stuff here. Uh, moving along here, I could go into each one probably a little bit long, but, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with Mance in that tent there. We've got Daenerys Targaryen. We got a big scene with her, but then we end the show with her here. So let's uh, let's go to Marjorie Tyrell. Uh, she's playing a wonderful game. We get to really spend time with her. She's now in Flea Bottom, stepping through the muck and mire to go win over um, the orphans of the city, win over the uh, the, the small folk, uh, and and to do it in a smart way. I believe, much like John, a little bit. Uh, it's a truth for Marjorie. I don't think she's faking some of the care for the kids, but it's tactical. She wants Joffrey in her corner, uh, if if not to control Joffrey, but her weapons are different than anything Joffrey is used to. Cersei is on the other side of that, right? Cersei wants to keep her power. We already know by season two she's starting to lose control of Joffrey. That's a lot of the stuff that her and Tyrion were talking about in season two, and now, now at least she has her place as the Queen's Regent, but now Marjorie is here because following the Battle of Blackwater Bay, Sansa, who at the time was much easier to control for Cersei, she's been replaced. Marjorie is in. Uh, I don't know if Cersei, did she, at the time, maybe that probably seemed good, uh, but now it's it's starting to, starting to be a problem for her. She's losing control. Cersei wants to keep that control, right? Uh, here comes Marjorie. And what I love here, too, is, is Joffrey, um, what does Joffrey want? In this episode is asking that too. Joffrey, as we know, wants to be considered the king. He wants the glory. It's all he knows. Uh, and here he is down at Flea Bottom. Great little Jack. Jack Leeson's got some great, when they stop that uh, procession and Jack Leeson freezes up as, as Joffrey, he's gun shy from the riot because uh, there's a season two riot where uh, the high, high Septon was ripped apart and they were attacked. And um, that came out of... Uh, Joffrey not knowing handle, how to handle the people, not, not knowing how to, he wasn't secure in his own power. A cow pie in the head nearly destroyed him, nearly destroyed his entire uh, procession, his family, everything. Um, here's Marjorie roaming around the very same city that nearly ripped Joffrey apart and did rip some of his uh, entourage apart. Marjorie's just walking around freely and I love Joffrey watching it and Joffrey seeing it because Joffrey wants power, yes. But in a way, he wants love. I'm not going to break it down to the point of like he never got the true love from his father. And Yeah, that's probably true. I don't want to create too much sympathy for Joffrey, but he started out at some point as just a little kid before he started ripping uh, legs off of bugs, I guess. I am fascinated by that little look of seeing Marjorie because now Marjorie is saying, look, I want to control Joffrey. I want to be the queen. But how do I do it? How can I show him the other way? She's so wily. She's so smart. You want power, Joffrey? I can get you that power. You want to be considered the king? I can get you that consideration from all the small folk. 
by not lording over them, by not, um, you know, sitting up there in your ivory tower, uh, almost literally, but by being down with them. Think of the stuff later on. There's some stuff, great stuff later on in the sept, right? We'll jump ahead but in, in the season, but where, where Marjorie just goes, let's go out and let's go wave to the people. Joffrey's happy. It's one of the few moments of pure happiness on Joffrey's face. That moment is, is earned because of what goes on here. Joffrey's watching it. I, I want to be loved. I don't want to just be king. I want to be loved. Marjorie's offering him away. Now, does Joffrey take it? Does Joffrey still have a bunch of problems? Oh, yeah. Again, I'm not trying to create a lot of sympathy for Joffrey, but I love what's going on here. It is, it is truly a game. It's truly a power, power play. Cersei on one side, to be careful down there, they'll gut your heart out. Trust me, we were down there a while ago, and man, they try to kill all of us, which we know is a fact. And Joffrey, ugh, my mom has a penchant for drama. We were our lives weren't in risk. Uh, which, by the way, I think that dinner scene with Cersei and Joffrey is one of the best duels in Game of Thrones. When Cersei throws back to him, oh yes, well, you know, we we all don't have uh, you, you get too much of your father, and you we don't have a king's courage. She says to Joffrey, who knows that he pretty much probably peed and crapped his pants down there and had to be saved. Um, uh, I love the I love the barbs, I love the duel, and and uh, Cersei's the one uh, the 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 undercutting of Marjorie's dress and all the so great scene. It is truly a fight. It is a duel, a duel between Cersei, Joffrey, Cersei, Marjorie. I uh, love it there, but uh, I love it. And Cersei wants to keep that power, and she's watching Marjorie sink her claws into Joffrey, and um, that's something that's uh, always going on with her. Love it. Love the sequence. Love what's going on. Again, Marjorie, just so smart. So smart. Shame she lost in the end, though. She went out, you know, as best she could. We'll get there in season six. Daenerys Targaryen, we get two good, uh, good scenes with her. We get to see her on the boat, on the ship, crossing the uh, poison water with the barfing Dothraki. And uh, it's pretty clear she wants to take the Iron Throne. But to do, sh- do so, she needs an army. That's what she really wants right now, at least when we first meet her. She wants the army. Jorah, Jorah wants her to have uh, an army, wants her to have the Unsullied as uh, a slave army. Because he knows the truth. She needs to prove herself as strong. Otherwise, the Dothraki won't follow her. And otherwise, quite frankly, the world won't follow her unless she can be strong. Danny, all through season two, of course, uh, learned some um, painful but powerful lessons of not being in a position where she has to accept the help of others. She wants to control her own destiny as best she can. And uh, her destiny, she feels at this point, I think, is taking the Iron Throne. But I think that's going to start changing. And I think it does start to change here. Um, at Astapor with Krasnitz. And, of course, uh, we uh, Missandei's here. Natalie Emanuel's on the cast now. Another great debut. A lot, lot of debuts in Season 3, Episode 1 here. I think Danny's faced with the morality of the choice in front of her. Um, um, but... Uh, you know, struggle and Barristan and and uh, Jorah will have that debate a little bit later on in the season, um, but I think in this moment as she's watching this play out here, she's watching Krasny's, uh cut off a nipple and uh, insult her, and she plays the game so well of of not pre- uh, pretending to not speak the language, um, and seeing the true value of Missandei, seeing how smart and uh, careful and cautious and and uh, just particular with her words that Missandei is. Uh, Danny uh, no longer just wants an army. I think in this moment, similar to what Jon Snow is being faced with, I think Danny really, really sees uh, the future here, what she can be. 
She doesn't just want to take the Iron Throne. She doesn't just want an army. She needs it. But now she wants to free this army. And now she wants to free many in Slaver's Bay. I think it all starts to crystallize for her here. And she knows. Uh, she knows what she wants to do. A uh, lot more in Danny's journey, I know. And I don't think I even have time to get into it here. But I love this. I think, I think uh, the uh, moment's going to happen a little bit later in the season, the Jakaris moment, which is a great moment. I think that all forms right here and there. And I love Jorah, but he's a little step behind, right? Everyone's kind of a step behind Danny. She, got, she knows the plan. I do want this army. I do want the Unsullied. But now seeing what's done to them, hearing what has been done to them and how those are treated here in Astapor, in the Slaver's Bay, I know what I need to do. What I really want to do is free them all. And I really want people to follow me, but on their own accord and by their own free will. I think it's a key moment for Danny in this moment, in a great moment. Uh, we get the reveal of Sarah, Sir Barristan Selmy, uh, who wants to serve Danny. Yeah, he wants to serve, but he wants forgiveness and wants to feel worthy of his acclaim and make up for what he felt and feels is, is wrong. And uh, you know, maybe a little self-loathing, but Barristan from Barristan Selmy. Uh, and I know uh, what, uh, Arts and White Bread, uh, White Bread, White Beard, I'm now hungry. I just said White Bread because I'd love a good White Bread. Sam, no. Arts and Whitebeard uh, is uh, the book version, uh, right? Uh, gosh, am I now, I'm in, now I'm even questioning if I'm saying that right. It's been a while. Uh, that's the uh, the book version. We get to spend a little bit more time with him in the books before it's revealed to be Barristan. And I know there were some uh, critiques of this even back here. Again, the big critiques were already starting. But again, uh, we're going we're gonna to get a little bit of that with Theon very soon. Theon and Reek. Again, I ask you. How could you possibly have hidden uh, Ian McElhenney, uh, uh, Sir Barristan Selmy, on a show for half a season or even a full episode? I guess you could just accept that we know who the character is, but the TV show, uh, the characters in the, t- in, the t- in the TV show don't know that it's Sir Barristan Selmy. But it's a hard sell, and it's a hard sell for Jorah. I, I actually love, I love the book version, I love the book story, but I love that Jorah just in this moment is like, uh, oh no, it's, yeah, that's Sir, that's Sir Barristan Selmy. He's, he's a great fighter. He also... You know, helped uh, take your father out and family and serve Robert Rathian, the man trying to kill you. But it's okay. It's good. It's good. We're fine. I love it. So I love it. I love that we get to deal with it. It is what it is. It's Sarah Barristan Selmy. Great uh, intro. Love the scene. I love the the girl from uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the warlocks trying to kill Danny. Uh, freaky, creepy moment. Uh, bugs are always creepy, right? So I think it's great. Great way to end uh, episode one. Uh, and we got everyone's wants and their true wants and what they need to understand about what their own desires are and their own goals. Uh, we had a lot more characters to be unveiled in season three, episode two, but we're setting big pieces here. So I love it. I love it there. Um, things uh, are, are have a little bit more uh, more meaning to them now, now that the show's all done, perhaps some foreshadowing that we might have missed the very first time you're watching these episodes. Mance, I love Mance Raider saying, we need to find you a new cloak. And then later on, when he meets John again, he says, you're wearing black again. Uh, I, I love that little thing there. Um, uh, we should know, again, I, I want to know, uh, Tyrion wants his father's respect, maybe even his love. And again, taking that all the way up to season four, knowing where that goes. I think there's some more meaning and foreshadowing there too. Uh, a little, this is this is admittedly uh, grim, uh, but Marin Trant uh, being insulted by 
uh, Braun, and Braun saying, you're, you, you know, you're, you're better at beating little girls than fighting men, which is a reference, direct reference to Sansa, but a little bit later on, what we learned from Aaron Tramp, ah, you know, I wouldn't say. Um, he's a good dude, so... A little more meaning there. Uh, Roose Bolton saying, my best hunter is after him. Talking about Jamie Lannister and just kind of uh, knowing that that's Locke and what's coming there. I like that. Enter, enter Anton Lesser, like I said, is Kyburn. It's such a moment. If you don't know, and I at the time, again, book one and two are in my rearview mirror. I had yet to read book three. I wanted to wait till after season three. This Kyburn moment, it, he says his name. It's Anton Lesser. I wasn't too familiar with him, but he's got a great career, great resume. I remember thinking, oh, okay, it's some guy they saved. And when he comes back, I'm like, oh, that guy's that guy's hanging out. That guy's that guy's helping Jamie now. That's interesting. Kyburn, an amazing character, simply because I think I mean he's 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 interesting, but I think he becomes an amazing, just really intriguing character because of Anton Lesser. Uh love what he's done. Big part of the show, and he's introduced right here. Of course, so this 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 is just so simple and it's easy. Uh, it was easy, easy to overlook for me. Uh we go to Tywin Lannister. I, I, there's a couple things. Uh, tell, yelling at Tyrion about uh, bringing a whore into my bed. Uh, you know, with what's going going to go happen with Shay and that bed. Uh, that means a lot more now. But Tyrion, uh, excuse me, Tywin writing letters. It's so simple. It's And you can pause and do a little bit of a read on, on what he's saying, uh, what he's writing in those letter course. But for someone like me and and many viewers of this show... At the time, in 2013, not knowing what this red wedding red wedding's going to be, not knowing what's coming, I remember thinking, and I wasn't on a podcast at this time. Uh, we were doing Schmoes Now at this time, but we weren't really breaking down the show on a weekly basis. But I just remember like, to my friends going, man, every time they cut to Terry, he's just writing letters. He's, that's all he's doing this year. He's just writing letters. Not only a lesson learned for this show in this season, but a lesson learned for me. Uh, when you're when you're taking a, a deeper look and, and discussing these uh, these shows of uh, genre and big fandoms, look at everything. Look at the big picture. Uh, don't make assumptions. Don't overlook things. Uh, again, themes and lessons. Um, what does Tywin want? He wants to end this war and cement his legacy, and he's literally doing that in every scene, writing to the phrase, to Roos, to everyone, to cement that legacy. I uh, got uh, great stuff with Roz and Shay. I love the little scene. Uh, uh, here's two sex workers work, trying to claw their way out of their situations, and they have a uh, great little moment with Roz. Uh, you know, it's not easy for girls like us. Love Shay being guarded, but you get to see her face. It's, it's a great little shot scene. Um, and Roz saying, watch out for her with him about Sansa and Baelish. Uh, unfortunately, has more meaning uh, now. Um, I also just really love the moments with, with Davos and, and Melisandre. They're intertwined, and their stories, um, especially Melisandre's story, ends in, in front of Davos's eyes in, in season eight. I, so I love this moment when Davos, uh, when she says to Davos, you know, I'm not your enemy, and he yells back, you are my enemy. That that never goes away, right? It never goes away, even, even to season eight. When she shows up in season eight, Davos has that look like, all right, I said I'd kill her. I'm going to go kill her. I'm going to go kill her. I'm going to go down and kill her. And he doesn't, and he sees her end. He sees what she does. They have such an inter- intertwined relationship, and what goes on with Shireen and Stannis and everything. And I so I love just it just has it's, it's not necessarily foreshadowing to me; it just means a lot to me now. For him to ex- just proclaim, "You are my enemy." 
Uh, favorite lines and scenes and moments. There's a lot going on. I mentioned the Jor uh, Mormont uh, quote. I just love, uh, you know, before winter's done, everyone you've ever known will be dead. I just, I think it was so wonderfully delivered. Uh, the opening scene with uh, John walking into uh, the uh, camp of the wildlings, the free folk there. Uh, Ian White is the giant. Of course, Ian White was um, uh, Sir Gregor in season two. They uh, were going to recast him. Uh, um, so he gets the giant role and he plays uh, several other roles too. Um, so good stuff there. Um Mentioned the torment. I love uh, Torment Giants, man. Here we go. What an intro. He's going to be a key part of the show to the very end. And it just means, it also just means more him and John meeting, knowing where they end up. Right? But I love the line, uh, plenty of little men try to put their swords through my heart. And there's plenty of little skeletons in the ground. Um, I love that. I mentioned the Cersei uh, mentioning Tyrion's nose. I said you lost your nose, but it's not as gruesome as all that. Again, a change from the books. Yes, in the books, Tyrion is just just horribly deformed from this uh, injury. Nose gone. Just he's he's hard to look at, which was part of the point of that character in the books. Uh, there was just no way you're going to get Peter Dinklage to run around us. Uh, you know, seven, uh, six more seasons. Yeah, six more seasons with his face half cut off. Makeup, prosthetics, it's just no way. No way. So you give him the score. And I, I think this show deals with it in a fun way. Uh, I just love the line uh, from Salador's son, and you drank with me on four of my wedding days, and I don't ask for favors. Salador San, just a great character. Uh, I also love it in that tense scene with Tyrion and Tywin. Uh, I do love uh, uh, when uh, Tywin's accusing him of, of drinking with... Uh, 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 was drinking with the, uh, the, uh, the bad guys and, and hanging with harlots and... Uh, Tyrion shoots back, occasionally I drank with the harlots. And he actually kind of smiles at himself, just kind of smiles at the good times, but also is at the line. You know, my dad's yelling at me, but I could still get him with them. Uh, I mentioned it with Cersei and Joffrey at the dinner. It's just one of the best duels in Game of Thrones. It really is. Um, I love this. Uh, and, and Cersei's saying, you're right, of course, you're your father's son. We all can't have a king's bravery. Just great stuff there. I mentioned Danny's smile. Um, watch it again. Watch that scene again. Uh, Danny smiling uh, to herself, kind of when she's in front of the Unsullied, and it, to me, she knows her plan. She knows it right there. Dracarys later on—that's no accident. She knew what she was going to do. She's so smart. She's so ahead of that game there. At this point in her uh, life and times and career, there. Uh, final favorite little moment. Uh, you know, I love Stannis Baratheon. No secret there. Uh, Davos being brought back and. Stephen Delane, and this was specifically mentioned. You can go again read uh, "Fire Cannot Kill Dragon" by James Hibbard. Great little book behind the scenes, um, uh, official look at uh, some of the stuff there. Um, Liam Cunningham is, is kind of asked or brings up in, in the interviews. The book is a collection of uh, a lot of interviews, new and old, about you know Stephen Delane reputa- reputation for being a little uh, maybe a little grumpier, maybe less uh, interested in talking about Game of Thrones, um, and a bit dour, a little bit like Stannis. Uh, Liam Cunningham defends him, and he had obviously so many scenes with him, and, and defends him and says that's not necessarily true. And he's a great scene partner, and he's a great actor, and makes wonderful choices. And 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 Liam Cunningham actually cites this scene where Stephen Delane uh, hears uh, you know Davos walk in, and he doesn't turn around, he doesn't uh, make the choice to be big, and oh my gosh, Davos back, he just looks at him, takes back, he takes this, this great beat, this great moment, and just says, "I heard you were dead." Uh, Davos is not yet, um, great stuff, but it's just the performance of Stephen Delane, just knowing every word, every movement, um, that he makes is telling that story to so much great acting in the show without a doubt. And that's, that's a little quiet moment. That's one of my favorites. Episode stars. Um, we always like to highlight some of the stars of the episode. I think everyone's a star. 
Kieran Hines and Christopher Hibju, I want to highlight out just that great opening sequence. Clearly, I loved it. I just uh, talked so much about it. It's such a just a wonderful introduction to those characters. I really enjoy them. Uh, I also want to shout out uh, uh, Dan Hildebrand as Krasnus. So Krasnus, uh, Krasnus Mo uh, Naklaus, uh, you know, so many letters, so many uh, uh, consonants and vowels. Dan Hildebrand is so good in this role. You want to see him die, right? Uh, he's a great character actor. And do this little game. Uh, uh, Grace and I were re-watching Deadwood. I've, I've re- I love Deadwood, and she had never seen Deadwood. We're watching the first episode of Deadwood, and, and I, I, I almost, like, forgot. Uh, almost forgot that uh, um, uh, he was in it. But Dan Hildebrand is in the first episode of uh, Deadwood. He plays uh, an Irish immigrant. Uh, that is a uh, run afoul of Ian McShane. And if, if you go back, you could almost miss it. He, he plays uh, uh, Shaughnessy and he also will play uh, Tim Driscoll. Um, it is, it's, it's quite frankly stunning. It's so interesting. And I actually paused, we just watched this a couple weeks ago. I actually paused the screen and I, look, I looked at Grace and I said, recognize that? And she, no, no. I said, think Dracaris. We both had just a great moment. He's just a great little character actor, man. And I, I think he's great as Krasny's. I think he just does exactly what is needed out of that character. And you want to see him burn. Final episode star is someone not on the show, but someone involved in the show. And that's David J. Peterson. Uh, and I had the pleasure of interviewing and meeting David J. Peterson over on the old Screen Junkies days, on the Watching Thrones days. He's the guy that created all the languages in the show. And he, that's what he does. He's a linguist, right? Um... Uh, you know, Tolkien was so good and created his own language to the point that he needed a, a story. Uh, well, uh, The Hobbit and some Lords of the Rings uh, just to make my language work. Uh, David J. Peterson, um, fascinating character, interesting cat, and had a lot of just interesting uh, things to say about creating all these languages, including uh, a language for um, for the White Walkers that really was never used on the show, a language for the children, all these kind of things, and a lot of scenes that were even cut uh, there was a lot of dialogue with the children in, in their own tongue, and their own language that didn't uh, get into the show. Um, but the High Valerian does, and it's so key to the show. And, and it, we've heard it before. Valor Margulis, Valor Dohiris, we, we've definitely heard it before. But by the time you get to Astapor, um, and, and, and you've got entire scenes, and yes, you got subtitles, um, but you got the entire scene, and Dan Hildebrand and all these actors, Natalie Emanuel and, and, and Amelia Clark. Speak in High Valerian like it ain't no thing. And it's this real, just lived-in language. Uh, that's David J. Peterson. And definitely want to highlight him here and say he's an episode star. So there you go. That is our look. We are into season three, season one, uh, season three, season three, episode one. Uh, I've been talking all day. Valor Doharis is in the books. We are moving on to uh, the other characters that we uh, didn't get to meet. The, the cast, the stories are so big and sprawling, we can't even fit them into one uh, episode to launch the season. we got to make it two, which, again, was interesting. We'll talk about it next uh, next episode. But I think that's why you really started to hear these conversations of, oh, this season of Game of Thrones is so slow. I just uh, Can we get to the action? And then later on in season seven, the producers go, hey, let's just get to the action. And everyone goes, gosh, the show moved too fast. Could we just take more time with the characters? Ah, uh, to try to make fans happy. What a tough task indeed. All right, that is it for now. 
You can follow me at CatNapsock. Go follow the GPA, the Good People GPA, on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Uh, go to our website, thegpa.fun, and uh, consider joining at a, a membership level. But also you get to enjoy all the content on the YouTube channel, the Twitch channel, and right here, Casually Talk. Subscribe, tell a friend, and we are building towards House of the Dragon. Don't you worry. This will be your location for our discussions on House of the Dragon coming sometime in season uh, uh, or uh, season one coming sometime in 2022. We just got a little tease. A little tease was released. No plot, no care, just a logo on fire, dragons burning. We like that. So this is going to be your spot. And also for those listening on the podcast, I can't thank you enough. Keep listening on the podcast. Keep downloading. That really helps us as well. That is it for right now. We'll see you next time. Valor do Hyrus, my friends. All men must serve. <laughs>